So I think that's enough housekeeping, but I'm looking forward to spending this summer with you. Um, open up, uh, I hope you bring your copy of Lewis and a Bible with you. We sort of be using both uh, this summer. Um, today we're only going to be looking at the first chapter of The Line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I'll be drawing some biblical theological conclusions. So I hope you read the first chapter. Um, took you probably a whole 15 minutes. I hope you read the first chapter before you came today. Uh, just a couple things. Uh, as you look at the title, either the title page or the front of it, it's always fascinated me, and sometimes I, it doesn't take much to fascinate me, but I've always been fascinated by the fact that in the title, The Line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, for those of you that may be English teachers or professors, you notice what is missing there that really irritates a lot of us. The Oxford comma that I just feel so compelled to put after the word witch to make it the line, the witch, comma, and the wardrobe. The reason that's fascinating for me, again, the Oxford comma is named after what university? Oxford, which is where C.S. Lewis taught. Don't know why he was opposed to using the Oxford comma, and it could just be the publishers. But uh, the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, you're going to be introduced to all of those. Um, if you look at the dedication before you get to chapter 1, because this is going to have bearing throughout the, the Chronicles, you see that the dedication is to Lucy Barfield. Lucy Barfield uh, was a goddaughter for C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis never had children. He only married late in life, and it was a short marriage because his wife died with cancer. But he never had children. Um, he actually, and this will fit if you've read the first chapter, he and his brother Warney at the Kilns, there is home in Oxford, he actually received a group of little girls from London who had to evacuate London during the air raids. So that's about the closest he ever had to um, when he wrote Chronicles of Narnia. That was the closest he ever had to actual experience with children. Uh, but Lucy Barfield was his goddaughter. When he marries Joy, and he marries Joy after he has written the Chronicles of Narnia, when he marries uh, Joy Davidman, um, uh, he does inherit her two sons, uh, inherit particularly after she passes away with cancer. But when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he really had very, very little experience with children. But Lucy Barfield was his goddaughter. Just notice what he says to begin at the dedication. My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, it I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales. And by the time it is printed and bound, you'll be older still. But, and this I think he's writing for you folks and me, but someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. Uh, in one of his writings, C.S. Lewis said, uh, if, if a children's story is only good for children, it's not good for children. I mean, if adults can't read that literature and benefit from that literature, we probably shouldn't be wasting our children's time with it. Anyway, so Lucy, which is a name you'll grow very familiar with in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy Barfield here, to whom the book is dedicated, was his goddaughter. So, um, and we'll be looking at the chapters differently each week, and you'll notice on your reading schedule, 
uh, today just one chapter, some days two chapters, some days three chapters. I, I do find more fodder for theologizing in some chapters than others. So uh, that's the reason for why some weeks only be two chapters we'll discuss. But today I just want to get you through the wardrobe the first time. So if you'll open to chapter 1. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Uh, if you read other Chronicles of Narnia, you learn that they are the Pevensey children, Pevensey or Pevensey children uh, from London. Um, just a couple, Peter's the oldest, Susan's the next oldest, Edmund's the next, Lucy's the youngest. A um, couple things just about Edmund and Lucy because they're probably in many ways um, the two more fascinating children. You will watch a journey for Edmund, particularly in the line of the witch in the wardrobe. He is not a pleasant child at the beginning. Um, and he gets less pleasant as the chapters go. But then um, uh, his relationship to Aslan is going to be real significant at the end. But you'll notice even in the first chapter, Edmund is a grumpy child, never happy, um, stays angry at his siblings. Lucy is the youngest. Uh, most, particularly in this book, uh, most of Narnia you will experience through Lucy's eyes. Um, Lucy, in some ways, is a little bit more significant than the other three. Again, may go back to Lucy Barfield, his goddaughter, to whom this book was um, uh, dedicated. Uh, Lucy, by the way, comes from, if you know any Lucy's in your life, it comes from the word, the Latin word lux, L-U-X, which means light. So you, your perspective on Narnia uh, will be seen in many ways through the perspective of, of Lucy. The others, the others come to bear, but Lucy's real significant. So go back to the text. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy... This story is about something that happened to them when they were sent away from London during the war because of the air raids. So this is set in the early 40s during the air raids, um, Nazi Germany attacking London. C.S. Lewis published this in 1950. So he's, he wrote this after the war effort. Uh, he published this in 1950. Uh, then he published one chronicle a year, um, through 1956. Uh, this was the first one he published, but he's setting it about a decade earlier uh, during the air raids. Um, this, the Chronicles of Narnia, if you don't know, um, they, they've sold over 100 million copies and they've been translated into 47 languages. So there's a lot of good reasons you're paying attention to this literature. Anyway, so this takes place uh, when these kids are sent away from London during the war because of air raids. That happened during the air raids, as I said. Um, Warney, uh, his brother, uh, and uh, Jack, when they were confirmed bachelors during the war, um, received a group of little girls there at their home in Oxford. That's, a lot of that experience has, has bearing on what you read in this, this chapter. They were sent to the house of an old professor. Well, C.S. Lewis was a professor. Uh, he's mixing uh, himself, C.S. Lewis, with uh, the professor who had the most, ex 
most influence on his life was a um, Professor Kirkpatrick that became a tutor to Jack when he was very young. Uh, he was um, heavily influenced by Kirkpatrick. Uh, he, he writes that Kirkpatrick was the most purely rational man he had ever met in his life. And Kirkpatrick is who prepared uh, Jack to go to Oxford. Um, you will learn later that this old professor's name um, is Diggory Kirk. So we know who it's based on. It's based on Kirkpatrick, an amazing, amazing person who influenced C.S. Lewis' life. So this, this old professor, sort of a mix of the two of them, that was the life that C.S. Lewis knew best was the life of a professor. They were sent to the house of the old professor who lived in the heart of the country, 10 miles from the nearest railway station and two miles from the nearest post office. He had no wife and he lived in a very large house with a housekeeper called Mrs. McCready and three servants. Their names are Ivy and Margaret and Betty, but they do not come into the story much. He himself was very old man, was a very old man with shaggy white hair which grew over most of his face as well as on his head. And they liked him almost at once, but on the first evening when he came out to meet them at the front door, he was so odd looking that Lucy, who was the youngest, was a little afraid of him. And Edmund, who was the next youngest, wanted to laugh and had to keep on pretending he was blowing his nose to hide it. Um, the more you get to know Edmund, the more you're going to be surprised he was even pretending at this point. But he was on his best behavior when he was trying to pretend. So um, soon you get into the chapter. Uh, so here they're living. I can't imagine, by the way, as a kid be, being sent away like this, but it happened during World War II. Uh, you, you, you see real quickly that Edmund is bickering with his siblings. Uh, he doesn't like Peter acting like his father. He doesn't like Susan acting like his mother. But So you see that personality of Edmund pop out pretty quickly. Um, and then I'm, in my edition, which yours is probably the same, um, I'm toward the bottom of page four. The, the house they're in, the house they're in uh, is referred to as a huge house uh, with any amount of stairs and passages in between and lots of books scattered all over the place. Um, it, it was, it's, it, the house is a mix between C.S. Lewis's home outside of Oxford, the Kilns, and the house that C.S. Lewis grew up in in Belfast uh, that the family called Little Lee. Uh, the house that he grew up in in Belfast was, particularly for a child, was a huge house. You can still go see it. It's, it's in private hands now, but you can see the outside of the house. Um, it was a large house. C.S. Lewis's father was a solicitor. In our world, we call that an attorney, a lawyer. So he was comfortably middle class, and uh, Little Lee was the second house in which his family lived, and it was, a, it was a large house. And when he describes Little Lee, he describes it as a little bit smaller version of this professor's house. Uh, if you've seen the movie, which if you haven't, don't until you read the book, as always. But if you've seen the Disney Walden Pond version, of the line, the witch and wardrobe, which came out I think in '05, and that was hugely popular. Um, the houseage is huge. The house is fascinating. Uh, there's, you know, there's suits of armor, medieval armor scattered throughout the house. A lot of, uh, a lot of books scattered throughout the house. Anyway, so here the kids show up, and they decide it's going to be, it's going to be okay. There's a lot of land, a lot of property, a lot of house, a lot of books. 
Well, then you move on on page five as you make it through. You'll notice, and this is where we'll get, head towards some Bible in a little bit, uh, one of the paragraphs begins, but when next morning came, there was a steady rain. One of the things that we have noticed, and who knows, Jack Lewis may be laughing at us, and he may straighten us all out when we get to heaven with him one day. But one of the things we have noticed, who look at his writings closely, uh, rain has a prominent role. Um, rain ends up being, or the weather in general, ends up being providential. Like on this day, it's raining so the kids can't do what? They can't go outside and play. So they have to play inside. And something really remarkable happens. We'll talk more about this um, providence in a few moments. But something remarkable happens as they stay inside this major house and play. They decide that they want to go explore this house. Now, in the movie, they, they're playing hide-and-go-seek, which would have destroyed Mrs. McCready. She is not a happy housekeeper, particularly in the movie and maybe not in the book. But here they just want to go exploring. And you notice as you get through the chapter, you notice um, page six and following. Um, they, they're exploring. They go into a room. There's nothing in one room except a wardrobe. Um, some of you are older than I am. You remember wardrobes. I grew, up with, I grew up with closets in my world. But the first parsonage I ever lived in, right over here at Five Points, Mount Lowe Avenue, was an old parsonage. And what Tammy and I noticed when we moved in was no electrical receptacles, one per room, and very few closets because it went back to the days of wardrobes, freestanding wardrobes. Um, well, of course, C.S. Lewis and his, he lived from 1898, by the way. He lived from 1898. This is set during World War II. C.S. Lewis died on what day? Same day that John F. Kennedy got assassinated. That's why a lot of people didn't notice C.S. Lewis died. So that was his lifespan. So he goes back in history some. He's, he's setting this stage in the 1940s. But, of course, this house is an older house that belongs to an old professor at this point. So they find an old wardrobe. Uh, by the way, if you're ever up um, around Wheaton College, the Wade Center at Wheaton College, uh, which is a premier C.S. Lewis study center, you can go and see the wardrobe. Uh, that belonged to Jack Lewis up there. Uh, anyway, so they find this wardrobe. It's by itself in a room. They all, three of the siblings walk out. Lucy. We love Lucy. Lucy stays in the room, and she decides to look a little more closely at the wardrobe. Uh, you probably, on these pages, or thereabouts, page six and seven, you see an illustration. Y'all have illustrations? Um, yeah, the, the person who illustrated all of the Chronicles of Narnia became a rather close friend to C.S. Lewis. Her name was Pauline Baines, and we have correspondence between Jack and Pauline, the illustrator. Um, he was very gentle with her, because sometimes he didn't like some of her depictions. Sometimes she made mistakes. Um, he, but the only thing he really straightened her out on was how to draw a line better. But again, you know the story about Aslan that we'll get to. Lines are important. That line is important. But um, you see one of Pauline, um, you see one of Pauline Baines's um, drawings there. A few years ago, by the way, um, Harper re, re, 
produced Chronicles of Narnia, and they colorized uh, Pauline Baines's illustrations. Don't know if that was good or bad. But anyway, you see that first illustration here is the illustration of the wardrobe. Um, but you notice it says in the text, uh, right before Lucy decides to go into it, um, she says, or he says, the author says, it, it's a wardrobe that has a looking glass in the door where you see Mrs. Bain's photograph or sketching has two, has two uh, looking glasses, or may, those may not be looking glass, they may be solid. So the wardrobe there doesn't quite fit the way it's described in the text, but you get, you get this, the sense what the wardrobe is like. So Lucy goes in the wardrobe, and there's nothing in the wardrobe except what? Fur coats. We wonder who they belong to, by the way, for this old bachelor professor. Anyway, hold on to that for a while. We wonder who they belong to. Um, but something else you need to know, and you know this if you've read more of the Chronicles of Narnia, there are fur coats in that wardrobe, and all of Narnia is in that wardrobe. Um, it's all in there. You, you know, that's just, that, that, that comes to bear in some of the later Chronicles. But so the wardrobe has fur coats and Narnia in there. So she goes in and she starts pushing her way through the fur coats and th then she starts filling tree branches. She starts filling tree branches and then she sort of falls out onto the snow. It's rather dramatic in the movie. She falls out onto the snow in Narnia. But um, she's still really, all of Narnia is in the wardrobe. It's an amazing wardrobe. But anyway, she's in Narnia now because she's gone through the wardrobe. She's in Narnia. Uh, it's winter. You will learn later. It's always winter, but never Christmas because the white witch. Um, so it's winter. Um, she decides to start because it says she's inquisitive. So she decides to start checking out um, the landscape. You see the second illustration there by Pauline Baines. The, uh, in the wood, here in the woods is a lamppost. Um, just stuck in the middle of the woods, or as the Brits say, the wood. Just stuck in the middle of the wood is a lamppost. Uh, you will learn from the magician's nephew where it came from, how it got there, but that's for later. So there's a lamppost there. So she's kind of looking around, and then she f hears something. She hears like um, a hoof, hoof beats. And what she sees, and this is where chapter one ends, this is where we'll stop. She sees a phone. <laughs> Half animal, half human, a phone, half deer. Is that right? Half a phone is? I think half. I think a deer is half. A phone is half deer, but half animal. So they got hoofs from the waist down. Top half is human. That's a phone. Um, she sees a phone with an umbrella carrying packages, like he's been doing his Christmas shopping. But there's no Christmas in Narnia yet. Uh, always winter, never Christmas. So uh, she sees this phone. Um, this phone speaks to her. Talking animals are going to become a big deal in Narnia. The first words that's spoken to her by this phone, which means the first words spoken to her in Narnia, goodness gracious me, are the words about in goodness and about graciousness or grace, are the first words spoken to um, Lucy by this phone. C.S. Lewis wrote later in life, that he had this image in his mind 
of a phone with an umbrella carrying packages through a snowy wood. He had this image in his mind. It first came into his mind when he was 16 years old. And he wrote the chronicle, uh, the first, this chronicle of Narnia when he was 52. So that um, image evidently stayed there for a long time. If you read C.S. Lewis writing about how he wrote, he started usually with images and then created the stories. But this image of this phone, and it's a beautiful image. It kind of sticks with you, uh, particularly if you've seen the movies. Uh, it sticks with you. This phone walking through the woods, carrying his packages with an umbrella because it's snowing. And his name is Mr. Tumnus. So that's where chapter one ends. Uh, chapter two um, we'll start with what Lucy found there and her visit with the phone and how that the visit with the phone uh, sets up the rest of the story. So that's um, chapter one. Let me do a little bit of theologizing in Bible. Um, I mentioned that weather is, is, seems to be significant in all the Chronicles of Narnia. Weather seems to be providential. Uh, people tend... Tend to, people end up doing things in the Chronicles of Narnia because of the weather. Now, again, if any of you have ever been to Belfast, um, my family's ancestral home, if any of you have ever been to Belfast, um, and I hope you go sometime, please don't go to Ireland and not go to Northern Ireland. Go to Northern Ireland. A lot of people go to Ireland. They won't go to Northern Ireland. Uh, go to Northern Ireland. Uh, that's my ancestor coming out. Go to Northern Ireland. Go visit with the Protestants in Northern Ireland. Uh, like C.S. Lewis was. Uh, but anytime you are in um, Ireland, Scotland, anytime you're in the United Kingdom, what is the weather like often? It rains. I'll never forget sitting, standing at St. Andrews in Scotland, and it was starting to rain, and one of my good travelers walked up to me. She didn't bring an umbrella. And I won't say, you know, I just told you like 35 times. <laughs> To prepare for rent. You're going to the United Kingdom. Anyway, so C.S. Lewis grew up in that world. And uh, if you read his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, which just take Joy there is not his wife. Joy there is the theological joy. Uh, if you read his autobiography, which ends at his conversion, uh, you'll see um, a lot written about his growing up days in Belfast. And, you know, how he and Warney, days were very different when he and Warney could go out and play in in the yard, in the woods, in the trees, then those days when he was, they were limited to the inside. So for whatever reason, the weather becomes a big issue in the Chronicles of Narnia, but God always seems to use the weather to create something providential, such as in this chapter. They can't go outside, they're playing inside. Here comes Lucy having her unexpected encounter with an unseen world, because it rained. She can't go outside. A couple Bible verses. And if you have your Bible, you can... Because these two verses, these are just verses. But these are good verses to commit to memory in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, and some of you probably have committed these verses to memory. And there's a lot of times in life I have to return to these verses about how God works in our lives. Proverbs chapter 16, uh, look at verse 9. And it's going to be repeated too later in Proverbs. But 16, 9, the book of Proverbs, the heart of 
man plans his ways. Yeah, I keep two calendars. I'm already working on next year, my calendar for next year. That's why I have to have two going, my this year calendar, my next year calendar. Uh, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Yeah, life is what happens to mess up our plans. And uh, most of the time, many of the time, much of the time, that may be God intervening, interfering in our lives. Usually we can look back over our lives and see those interruptions, those interventions, those crises, those moments of great change. We can look back at our lives and, and then say, you know, I know now how God was working in my life. Um, that's a good verse. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Yeah, you know, those of us like me who are very right, who are very left brain, petulant, organized, methodical, God delights in messing up my days. And I've learned so much from that. By the way, God, my wife, my children while they're at home, and the church always delights in messing up my days. And that's usually God, though. So we need to be careful about how tightly we hold to our plans. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Look at chapter 19, just to show it to you again, uh, a little slightly different way. In chapter 19 of Proverbs, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man. Yeah, I'm always making plans. My to-do list. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So, um, yeah, God's at work. God is uh, orchestrating things. God is superintending over our lives. And sometimes even something as simple as the weather can be providential. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis thought that. Lucy discovered that, you know, when they had to play inside. And she ends up kind of entering this wardrobe and then um, has, an, has an unexpected encounter with, with the unseen world as a result of, the, of that rainy day. Now, the second text I want to talk about for just a moment, because I think um, the theology plays heavily um, into all the Chronicles of Narnia. Go to Genesis chapter 28. Go to Genesis chapter 28. Another should-be pivotal text for those of us who seek to live the Christian life. If you go to Genesis chapter 28, here you are early on in the um, story of Jacob. And uh, a chunk of Genesis is taken with the story of Jacob. And you see how Jacob changes and is transformed over the course of his story. Uh, part of that transformation starts um, in chapter 28 uh, because as he's fleeing... He's done some bad things. As he's fleeing, he has a dream. You know the dream. You know Jacob's ladder, the story. Uh, look at the text, chapter 28 of Genesis, beginning at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He's in the far south going to the far north. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, 
And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to the land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he, and he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And he names, and this is the gate of heaven. And he goes on to name this place Bethel, Bethel. Of course, Bethel means house of God in Hebrew. Notice what, what you see here in this vision. You see this ladder from heaven to earth, and you see the angels constantly ascending, descending on the ladder. What I think you're being presented there is you're being presented a picture that God, the, the host of the, the heavenly host, the God, the Lord of hosts, the heavenly host, the angel armies, God is always interacting, intervening in human history. Uh, there's, constant, um, there's constant communication. There's constant transportation between heaven and earth. There's the ladder, angels constantly ascending and descending. Um, that's what Jacob learns here. He learns that um, heaven and earth are much closer than he realized. This is the very gate of heaven. Uh, he hears the voice of the Lord talking to him. So with that in the back of your mind, go back to chapter 1 the Chronicle. Look at that drawing of a wardrobe. Um, you know, one of the things about this wardrobe is... Um, what you have in this wardrobe, I, I, I guess modern scientists would call it a wormhole into, into another dimension. Don't know much about science, but I hear they talk about those. That there may be wormholes to other dimensions. Don't know much about that. What I do know about is what Celtic Christians call thin places. Uh, my ancestor, our ancestors in Scotland and Ireland, the Celts there talked frequently about thin places. Uh, thin places are those places um, where heaven and earth are very close. Uh, thin places that we experience are those places where heaven and earth almost touch each other. Um, I'm sure you could describe some thin places uh, to each other. I hope so. hope you're looking for those thin places. Um, you know, when I think about thin places, probably the thinnest places I've ever experienced on a regular basis is when I've had the gift of being with people when they pass from this world to the next. That's a thin place. I mean, frequently I've had people tell me what they see in those moments. I don't see it, but, I'm, but those are thin places. My wife, who's a hospice nurse, will tell you she hears about those thin places all the time. People see things, hear things. Uh, 
I think when I got to, and I know some, I'm younger than some of you, when I got to witness the birth of my children, those were thin places. You know, when, I, when I'm there participating with God in the creation of human life, that's a thin place. I always endeavor to make sure that I do the best I can, that every time I celebrate Holy Communion, that's a thin place. Uh, as Christians, we believe that worship is the meeting of heaven and earth. The meeting of this seen world with the unseen world. That's why we believe angels are present with us when we worship. We believe that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, all the host of heaven celebrates with us. Now, sometimes it's hard to see that. But uh, we Christians who believe in a spiritual reality... Um, we believe these thin places exist where it, it almost feels like you can reach out and touch the other side. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, this wardrobe, interestingly enough, becomes a thin place. Um, you notice that when she opened the, the door, um, and I don't know much about this. I grew up around these things. But when she opened the door, mothballs came rolling out. I mean, it's just a very mundane, ordinary wardrobe but it becomes a thin place and she finds a whole unseen world inside of that inside of that wardrobe so um yeah one of the things we need to do better job of here in the in the scientific materialistic west is we need to help each other's christians believe in the unseen world believe in the world of the spirit believe that the spiritual world is more real than this material world. The spiritual world is more real than that chair that's holding you up. That's why C.S. Lewis frequently wrote um, that this world is the shadowlands. The real is on the other side. These are what we see here is but shadowland. It's reflections of the shadow. That's Plato, by the way, which you'll experience Plato in the Chronicles of Narnia. That's Plato, by the way. The real is the other side. We get confused. We think this is the real, and we hope there's shadow or something on the other side. Um, the Christian faith has always said this is the shadow lands. That is the real world. And there are times the real world impinges upon this shadow land. So I hope that you believe that. I hope that you seek that. You know, I'm amazed at how Christians can live the... They, they seek to live the Christian life as a purebred, thoroughgoing materialist. And again, that's what C.S. Lewis was till he came to faith in Christ when he was about 30 years old, about 32. He was a purebred, rationalistic, materialist, only believed in reason and what he could touch. But uh, he, he knew he had to let go of that when uh, he embraced Christ, or more specifically, Christ embraced him. Um, so, yeah, what, what you see throughout the Chronicles of Narnia is the, the two worlds getting close to each other. You will notice as you get into the Chronicles, and this is jumping ahead just a little bit, like here Lucy's going to spend hours on this trip to Narnia having a chat with the phone. When she goes back and tumbles out of the wardrobe, from this world, she's only been gone for a few minutes. Time's different in that world than it is in this world. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, so I think you know what he's getting at with all that. Um, 
there is another world that is real. Sometimes this world gets awfully close to that world. Um, so I hope that you're open to that. I hope that you're, that's what you want. I mean, you know, it always, it always kind of concerns me that when we share Holy Communion, I know that there are people in the room for whom that is nothing but a piece of bread and some old grape juice. And it just remains that. And that is so sad to me. Um, one of the things C.S. Lewis, and we're closing up, one of the things C.S. Lewis consistently said he wanted to do, um, even before he started writing fantasy and such, he said he wanted to re-enchant our world. You know, he believed that, um, you know, our, our ancestors talked about the, the song of the spheres. Our ancestors talked about how all creation bears witness to God. Our ancestors spoke about how um, uh, all, all of creation, everything that we see, somehow is a revelation of God. You know, think about the difference between talking about the heavens above us and then all of a sudden in modern history, we don't call it the heavens, we call it space. Think about the difference between those two ways of looking at what we're surrounded by. Heaven sounds heavenly. It sounds like it's filled with heavenly bodies who sing the song of the, the spheres as we sing in some of our hymns, uh, that all of creation is singing a song to Creator. But in the modern era, it's just become space. Dark, empty, void space. So C.S. Lewis wants to re-enchant I hope that you're looking for God in every moment of your life. I hope that you're looking for the ways God is intervening. I hope that you're looking for those wormholes or thin places where the next world can touch this world because this world can disenchant you. This world can lead you to believe that the material is all that's real. And, you know, you just can't live the Christian life that way. I mean, we believe in, like, the Holy Spirit. We believe in spirits, one that's holy. We believe in a lot of supernatural things. In the modern world, we have people trying to be Christian without anything but science. And science is wonderful. C.S. Lewis praised science. He said, beware of scientism. Scientism is turning it into an idol. We can turn anything into an idol. We can turn a denomination into an idol. We can turn a sanctuary into an idol. We can turn the way we do Thanksgiving dinner into an idol. We can turn science into an idol. So he praised science. He said, beware of scientism. That it becomes, you know, sort of the, the idol that determines all the rest of your life. Um, so I hope that you'll let, as we go through the Chronicles of Narnia, I hope that you will let Jack, he really didn't like Clive Staples, I hope that you will let Jack um, re-enchant your, your world and you'll start feeling, looking for, experiencing the sacred and the divine all around you. Um, that's probably enough for today. Let me, let me uh, end with a prayer. And then I always like getting people out early. Uh, don't hold me to that for the rest of my life. Um, but I always like getting people out early. Let's, let's pray together. God, we thank you for the many ways you speak to us. 
And we confess to you, God, that sometimes we don't even have ears that's listening to the ways you speak to us. Give us a sense of wonder. Give us a sense of awe. Give us a sense of seeking and searching for your presence in our world, your presence in our life. We know that you're doing a remarkable work in us. We know that you're doing a remarkable work around us. So we pray, O oh God, that you will re-enchant our lives with the thickness of your Spirit. We offer this time to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.